Father, as we rejoice in this Advent season, we rejoice in those who by faith looked forward to it and actually from afar were able to enter into it by your grace. We are also the beneficiaries of that rich grace as we realize that what they longed for we have seen in the fullness of time. Oh Lord, as you press us down into the wonder of the incarnation and draw us also wonderfully into the sonship of Christ, the adoption of sons. We ask you to encourage not only our celebration and our singing and our rejoicing and our fellowshipping, but we also ask you, Lord, to bless our hearts and souls with a wonderful life and death and resurrection and glorification of your dear Son, our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we begin this evening with the structure of the 12th chapter of Hebrews. And as is our custom, we want to look for particular connections at the beginning and end. And Ben, what do we call those connections if they do exist? The hook words. We've actually had this uh, from the previous Outline of chapter 11, but we'll review it. Uh, The hook word for the beginning of chapter 12, which is tied into a word in the previous chapter, verse 39 of chapter 11. Now, it may not appear the same in all of your translations, but it is the same in the Greek text. It's the word witnesses in chapter 12, verse 1, and in 1139, the phrase that is translated gained approval in some versions is actually witnessed. It's the same Greek root. So we do have a hook pattern that ties together chapter 11 and chapter 12. Now, as you glance down at the bottom of your outline, you'll notice that there is no chapter 13 added to the bottom of the outline of chapter 12. And that's because we do not have a hook pattern at the end of 12 and beginning of 13. It breaks a pattern that we've had fairly consistently since chapter 4. And so it raises an interesting question as to why he broke his pattern here at the end of the book. And we'll try to address it next week when we cover chapter 13, which will also be the last week of our series on Hebrews. Now, there are a couple of uh, significant uh, repetitions here, uh, particularly in verses 18 and 29 that set apart that section of this chapter from the rest of it. So if you'll examine verse 18 and take a look at the vocabulary there and then 
glance down and scan verse 29, I think you can pick up the word that is duplicated in both of those verses. It is fire. Okay, very good. So you have fire in 18 and fire in 29. And again, the Greek word is exactly the same. Now, inside that little bracket, 18 to 29, uh, there are two other uh, patterns that are fairly straightforward. Uh, in 18, you'll notice that you have a phrase that is preceded by a negative. And in verse 22, you have the same phrase which is stated positively. <clears throat> Marge, what phrase are we looking at? You have come, and in 18, you have not come. All right, so notice the antithesis there. You have not come in 18, have come in 22. Now, in 25 and 28, you have another little uh, opposition or antithesis. If you compare 25 and 28, you have to uh, deduce from a word in 28 what is implied, but it is certainly clear elsewhere in this letter. But at any rate, if you were going to choose, shall we say, opposite words in 25 and 28, what would you suggest? No. What's what's this kingdom in 28? <clears throat> Lisa, what is that kingdom? Loretta? Can't be shaken. So it's the kingdom of it's the kingdom of heaven. And what do we have in 25? And what would be opposite kingdom of heaven? In 25, the earth. All right. So the earth in 25 and then the kingdom of heaven understood in 28, although the context makes it clear that that is the the opposition or the antithesis. Now, it's a little more difficult to understand what's going on in verses one to 17. There is no, shall we say, uh, bracketed frame like we have in 18 to 29. And there aren't these neat little oppositions, as we pointed out in 18 to 22 and then 25 and 28. So as we examine 1 to 17, I'm going to give you a series of parallels, and then we'll try to step back and ask, all right, what's the writer doing by using these parallels? First of all, in verse 1, you notice the phrase, set before at least if your version has that translation at the end of the verse. Notice in verse 2, you find that phrase again. Jesus for the joy that was set before him. All right, so we have set before in verse 1, and we have set before Repeated in verse 2. Once again, the Greek is exactly alike. Now, in verse 2, you have a word that also occurs in verse 11. At least you have a root of a word that also occurs in verse 11. So as you examine those two verses, 
Can you spot it? Joy and joyful. Very good, Ben. Yes. All right. So that's the second little uh, blank to fill in there in verse two. And then over on the uh, right hand side, we have three blanks from one, two and three. Can you find a word or a series of words that are similar, uh, have the same uh, basic root in one, two and three? Marge? Endured. We have endurance in verse 1. We have endured in verse 2 and endured in verse 3 again. Now, finally, a word that appears in verse 3 and verse 4. That is a word that is similar. It's not exactly the same, but it has the same basic root. We're striving against sin and who endured hostility of sinners, sinners and sin in verse three and four. All right. Now, as we step back from the blanks that we filled in there, you will notice that he's using a pattern in which a word that appears in a previous verse appears in a subsequent verse. So it's a hook pattern, but not a hook pattern which is connecting whole chapters. It's a hook pattern which is concatenating or linking together his argument. So we note the, the significance of the phenomena. What he's doing with the phenomena remains to be seen. But he is doing something intentional here. He's duplicating these phrases and he's moving from one section or one verse to the next to tie this pattern together. Now, in verse 5, he uses a pattern which he duplicates in verse 7. This is a little tricky, but nonetheless, you may be able to pick it out. The reason I say it's tricky is you might just glance over it or gloss over it. Actually, the two blanks there at verse 5 and the two blanks at verse 7 are almost exactly the same. Art? Uh, sons. And? Son. And sons, yes. Sons, plural first, and sons, second. You'll notice it's the same sequence in 5 and 7. And what's sandwiched in between in verse 6? See it, Christina? Terry, back to you, Art. Son. Son again. All right, so he's got, he's got a little sandwich paradigm here when he's playing off of the theme of son, sons, sonship, etc. All right, now also in verse 7, we have a word that we've already had before, up above. You see it? Endure. Endure. Very good. Now, beginning in verse 
7, he uses a word that's going to recur in 8, 9, 10, and 11. A light verter. And Christina is our expert on light verters. Discipline is exactly right. Notice he uses it five times in those five successive clauses or verses. Now, we've already identified joyful in verse 11. But notice what we have in verse 10. We have two words in verse 10 and 11, which recur in verse 14. Or words that have similar roots. I see the word holiness at the end of verse 10. What do you see in verse 14 that is similar? Sanctification. It is the same Greek root. What do you see in verse 14 that's similar to a word in verse 11? Pursue what? Peace. What do you see in verse 11? Peaceful. All right, now notice the sequence. In verse 10, he uses the word holiness, and then in verse 11, he uses the word peaceful. In verse 14, he reverses the sequence. He uses the word peace first and follows it by the word holiness or sanctification. This is another chiastic reversal. All the way through verses 1 to 17. We haven't diagrammed 17. We'll talk about 515 to 17 later. All the way through this section, verses 1 to 17, he's doing something in using these duplicate patterns, duplicate phrases, working with the same roots, the same Greek terms. We understand what he does from 18 to 29. He's setting up oppositions. He's setting up antitheses. What's he doing in verses 1 to 17? He's establishing mirror paradigms. Mirror paradigms. What do I mean by that? That is, paradigms which are self-reflective. He's using images which reflect upon themselves in terms of conformity to Christ. In other words, the mirror of conformity unto Christ Jesus. Notice this in verse 2. He draws our attention to fixing our eyes on Jesus, whom he calls in some of your translations the author and perfecter of the faith. The better translation is actually pioneer and perfecter of the faith. Now, this raises the issue of why he begins in verse 1 with the cloud of witnesses. He's connecting Jesus' role in verse 2 to the cloud of witnesses in verse 1. Who are these cloud of witnesses? The elect? Yes, these are the people of faith in chapter 11, are they not? The Old Testament figures. All right, now, what was the status of these Old Testament figures? 
How did we describe them? How did we label them? Sojourners. Sojourners. Another word, synonym. Good, Loretta. Synonym for sojourners. Pilgrims. Pilgrims. They are pilgrims. All right, now, what's he doing with verse 2? He's relating this cloud of Old Testament witness pilgrims, okay, to Jesus. They were fixing their eyes on him, and we saw that as we discussed each of them in the 11th. describes Jesus as a pioneer and perfecter. Why does he use that vocabulary? Author and perfecter doesn't catch it. Pioneer and perfecter is much more dramatic and much more in tune with his vocabulary. Art, you were nodding your head. Well, is he a pioneer in the sense that we follow him? We're his? Oh, it's more than that. It's more than that. What would be more than that? Not just following in his train, but oh, flip it around. Art, flip it around. So he's a what? Loretta? He's a pilgrim too. You see, to call him the pioneer means that he's the leader of a group with whom he identifies. And who is this group? This cloud of witnesses? These are pilgrims of the Old Testament age. So he is identifying with them as a pilgrim as well. In fact, he is the eschatological pilgrim, which is the reason he stands at the end of this sequence. And is the reason you fix your eyes upon him. Notice the word pioneer is stronger than the word author because it contains the sense of identification. Christ identifying with the pilgrim sojourn of the people of God. He himself being a pilgrim of, what does verse 2 say? Of faith, even as they were pilgrims of faith. So he is the perfect pilgrim of faith. He is the perfect believer We've already learned that in chapter 2, verse 13 of this epistle. But here is Jesus himself taking on the character of a pilgrim between the times, between the ages. And so he comes to experience the experience of his fellow pilgrims. He comes to be a pilgrim as they are a pilgrim. He comes to sojourn upon the earth between the times of his incarnation and the time of his ascension and glorification. Jesus is the eschatological pilgrim. Now, this doesn't surprise us because in chapter 11, we've been talking about how the faith of this Old Testament cloud of witnesses have been focused on an eschatological person, namely Christ who is going to come and an eschatological dimension, namely that evidence of things not seen, heaven itself. Abraham is a pilgrim. 
He is focusing upon the coming of the eschatological seed of the promise, is he not? He even does that on Moriah with Isaac, his son. He's willing to give him up. He's wanting to give up his only begotten son. And so he's looking for the eschatological Christ, but he's also looking for that city whose builder and maker is God. Abraham is a Hebrew. He is a semi-eschatological Hebrew. He is a sojourner. He is looking for that heavenly dimension, that eschatological dimension, which is unseen, but is substantial. It is the really substantive dimension of his faith and his expectation. So in, in their era, cloud of witnesses, time passed. By faith, they possessed this eschatological person who is Christ. And by faith, they possessed this eschatological dimension, which is heaven. The substance of those things held for. The evidence of those things not seen. They were the blessed possessors. Now here, here in chapter 12, he is inviting his readers to like faith and to possess by faith the Christ who is the final pilgrim of the people of God, and to possess by faith the heaven that he already abides in and inhabits. Well, it doesn't say that he's inhabiting heaven, does it, in verse 2? Well, it says he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And in verse 22, what does it say? It says, you have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to the city of the living God. You've come to the place of a myriad of angels. You've come to God, to the firstborn of those enrolled in heaven, and to Jesus. So you see, this cloud of witnesses looks backwards and forwards. Verse 1 looks back to the pilgrims of faith of chapter 11, who are looking forward already seated in the heavenly Jerusalem, verse 22. As Christ himself, who is the eschatological believer, the man of eschatological faith is also seated in that heavenly Jerusalem at the right hand of the glory on high. Which means that their faith of old and our faith today possesses the very same thing. The same person, the eschatological Christ, and the same dimension, the eschatological place, heaven itself. Notice the mirror reflection. The mirror reflection of Christ in them and them in Christ. Christ in you and you in Christ. This is the mirror paradigm of a pilgrim sojourner. You have received Christ by faith as they did. They did from afar. You have seen it nigh at hand. You have possessed Christ by faith as they did. And you have a mirror reflection of the possession of that dimension that they entered into 
by faith. So Christ is the pioneer of faith because he's the object of it. He's the object of it for that cloud of witnesses time past. He's the object of it for those who walk by faith time present. And he will always be the object of it even for those that time future are seated in the heavenly Jerusalem. Well, Christ himself is a believer. He himself possessed faith. And by faith, he possessed heaven. Well, you say, well, he already was from heaven. That is true. But you see, in his earthly incarnation, he learns to believe upon all that had been taught by the law and the prophets, and he takes it to his heart in perfect fashion. And so he takes heaven to his heart in perfect fashion, even as Abraham took it to his heart. So Christ's life is mirrored. It is mirrored in the life of faith. Perfectly in its expression, namely he believes, and perfectly in its possession, namely he belongs to heaven. So if we say, that chapter 11 is a section about imitating the faith of the believers of the former age. If we say that chapter 11 is a chapter about emulating the faith of those former believers, we have cheapened, we have cheapened, we have cheapened what the writer is saying he's not talking about imitating their faith is he he's talking about possessing their faith he's not imi- talking about imitating Christ is he he's talking about possessing Christ he's talking about Belonging to Christ, participating in Christ, being united to Christ. That's what he's talking about. And so if you simply reduce the chapter to imitating the faith like Abraham, imitating the faith like Samson, imitating the faith like Moses, you see what you've done. You've made Moses an example. And Moses isn't asking to be an example. Moses is inviting you to embrace the very same Savior that he embraced, bearing his reproach. That is a much stronger participation, personalization, identification, affection than just saying, I'm an imitator. Any play actor can be an imitator. Any mime can be an imitator. But the writer of Hebrews is asking you to be a player, a possessor, a participant. He's drawing you into the drama of the journey, of the pilgrimage. He doesn't want you to stand off on the sideline. He wants you to be in the center of the assembly, the center of the band of pilgrims that is heaven-bound 
In fact, they're already there. Even as they sojourn, they're already there. The same for Christ. Even as he sojourned on the earth, he was already there in heaven with his Father in glory. All right, so our author is describing possessing the faith of Christ, participating in the faith of Christ, being united to the faith of Christ because he's the pioneer and perfecter of faith, being identified with Christ in respect of faith, even as he's describing possessing faith of the Old Testament pilgrim, participating in the faith of the Old Testament pilgrim, being united to the faith of the Old Testament pilgrim, being identified with the Old Testament pilgrims in respect to faith. This faith here, this faith places you in contact, places you in possession, places you in union with the eschatological realities and the eschatological person. That means that there is a mirror-like possession There is a mirror-like identification. So that in verse 2, Christ enters into our pilgrimage. He becomes the pioneer of that pilgrimage. Christ identifies in our pilgrimage. Christ sojourns as a pilgrim for us. In verse 1 then, we are pilgrims in Christ sojourning. We are identified in Christ as pilgrims sojourning in him. The relationship between that cloud of witnesses in verse 1 and fixing the eyes upon Christ in verse 2 as the pioneer of the pilgrimage is a mirror reflection. He is reciprocally identifying the one in the other. The pilgrim in Christ, Christ in the pilgrim. And notice what he does in verse 2. Following the mirror paradigm of being conformed unto Christ, Christ in us, we in Christ. Notice verse 2. Christ humiliated for us. Christ humiliated for us. Verse 1. We humiliated for him. We humiliated for him. Verse 2, Christ exalted for us. Christ exalted for us. Sitting down at the right hand of the glory on high. Verse 23, we exalted in him. We seated in the heavenly Jerusalem in Christ. Right, notice these reflective paradigms again. See, the pilgrimage motif is self-reflective. It captures us in Christ and Christ in us. It captures Christ's humiliation in us and our contentment to be humiliated for his sake. It captures Christ's exaltation for us and our exaltation in him. 
Verse 2 again, Christ suffering for us. Verse 7, we in Christ suffering for him. You endure as he endured. All right, so on your outline there at the bottom of the first page, underneath the mirror paradigms, verse 2 is Christ sojourning as a pilgrim for us. And verse 1, we in Christ sojourning as pilgrims in him, the mirror reflection of conformity unto him. The second verse 2, verse 1, Christ humiliated for us, verse 2. Verse 1, we in Christ humiliated for him. And then over on the right, verse 2, Christ exalted for us. And then verse 23, we in Christ exalted in him. And then verse 2, Christ suffering for us. Verse 7, we in Christ suffering for his sake. Now that brings us to the second page of the outline and to a continuing consideration of these mirror paradigms of conformity to Christ or mirror possession, mirror identification, mirror reflection of Christ in us and us in Christ. Going back to what we outlined or found as we noted the duplicate phrases, as we looked at the structure on the first page, the phrase set before him in verse 2. Set before whom in verse 2? Who's the him? Set before Christ, okay? Now, what's set before in verse 1? Who is the, who is the object in verse 1? Us. Notice the mirror reflection. Okay? So, this mirror conformity unto Christ. What was set before him is set before us. What is set before us is a mirror of what was set before him. We are reflected in him. He is reflected in us. He does this for our sake. We do it for his sake. Now, we noted the pilgrim witness already. I'm kind of repeating myself here, but I'm working it in. In verse 1, the pilgrim witness of that cloud of witnesses. And in verse 2, Christ, the pioneer, the eschatological pilgrim witness, the mirror reflection of conformity to Christ in terms of this pilgrimage motif. Then verses 2 to 3. He who endured, notice he repeats that phrase twice. He who endured. It's in verse 2 and it's once again in verse 3. Referring to Christ enduring. But we also endure. Verse 1, we run with endurance. Verse 7, it is for a discipline that you endure. So the mirror reflection 
is reciprocal again. This pattern of endurance is mirrored in Christ and in us. Verse 3, Christ suffered hostility to the point of shedding blood. Verse 4, have they suffered hostility to the point of shedding blood? Not yet. Not yet. But suffering is coming. Verse 5 and following. Notice the mirror reflection. Suffering to the point of shedding blood. It's already occurred to Christ. It has not yet occurred in this community. It has occurred in the book of Acts already. It will occur in the early church. Over and over again it will occur. Do we in America think that we're somehow exempt from this? Praise God we have been. And we pray that we may yet be. But I am less optimistic as one year after another goes by in this nation, which is turning its back increasingly upon Christianity and making it an object of ridicule. You are on the brink of a cultural shift in this nation. When Christianity becomes a byword and an object of ridicule in the public media. And when that happens, you've turned a corner. You need to begin to get ready for what the first century church got ready for. You cannot take for granted the faith that you've been given. It may be severely tested and sooner than you know. This community was going to be tested. This community was going to experience part of the great persecutions that came to the Roman Empire. Eventually, it would fall on them. He alerts them to that fact. They have been spared from, shall we say, full conformity to Christ to the point of shedding their own blood, but... The discipline is on its way, verses 5, 6, and 7. Now, before we go on, we have to ask the question about the suffering of Christ. Is it a form of discipline in his case? And if so, was it punitive or not? The suffering of Christ... Was it unto discipline in his case? And if so, was it punitive or not? What do you think? The discipline, the suffering of Christ, is it a form of discipline? And if so, is it punitive? Chapter 5 of this letter. So, Christ's suffering, is it punitive? It's punitive. He's undergoing punishment, is he not? 
Yeah, punitive means that he's enduring punishment. He's enduring the punishment which is due to us. Why did he do that? Why did his father punish him? Out of his love for us, was it not? Out of his love for us, he laid our punishment upon his son, and his son, out of his love for us, laid that punishment upon himself, that he would be disciplined by that punishment so that we would not be disciplined. I'm sorry, we would not be punished. Notice what the author is doing with this section from Proverbs. Is he saying that this discipline that comes from an earthly father is punitive? It's not punitive. It is what kind of discipline? King James is better here. It is chastening. It is chastisement. What's the difference between chastisement and punishment? Or is there a difference? Obviously, the writer of Proverbs and Hebrews is saying there is a difference. But what is the difference? Robert? What is the... to satisfy a legal requirement for satisfaction purposes, and the other is to turn you around. Chastisement is discipline for the sake of correction. It is not administered in wrath. Woe betide child abusers, wife beaters, Abusers of any kind who in their anger punish the objects of their anger. Correction in love is disciplinary in terms of chastening. It does not mean that corporal administration of that discipline is out of bounds, it is not. But that corporal administration must be done with affection and not in rage or hatred or anger. And never to hurt, never to hurt a child or one who who is in need of correction. All right, now... It may seem as if we are contradicting ourselves when we are describing this mirror paradigm between the chastening or the disciplining of the Son of God by suffering the contradiction of sinners and the chastening or the correction of uh, uh, (coughs) children or sons of the faith, which does not include punishment. In fact, we are not contradicting ourselves, we are penetrating into a wonderful mystery 
of how it is that in bearing the punishment of the wrath of God in our place, Jesus takes the sting out of our discipline. He takes the sting out of our chastening. He takes what would be condign wrath due to us and changes it into a corrective smile from our heavenly Father. A genuine Christian is never punished by suffering. A genuine Christian is never punished by suffering. A genuine Christian suffers. We will suffer. We will have tribulation. Paul has promised us that. It must necessarily mean the suffering of the flesh. It may be the suffering of the mind. It may be the suffering of the spirit. It may be the sickness that we experience. But what we experience in terms of suffering is not a punishment from God. Because, you see, he can't punish his son again. His son endured that punishment once for all. And you belong to his son. You are conformed. You possess. You participate in his son. And he cannot do to you what he would never again do to his son. So if you suffer, it is for your correction and discipline. It is for your being humbled. It is for your looking steadfastly unto Jesus. It is for you fixing your eyes upon heaven. It is not to crush you, nor to break you, nor to punish you nor to show the anger of God's wrath upon you. Never. He could not do it any more to you than he can do it to his own only begotten, only begotten and eternally beloved son. Now in verses 6 to 11, we find more of this pattern of mirror reflection. You will notice in verses 7 to 11, we noted the light verter, that is the word that is repeated in each of those lines, namely that word discipline. But in verse 6, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. The love of God that comes to you is a mirror reflection of the love of the Father for the Son, capital S and capital F. In other words, this love of God is that which flows out of your possession of Christ, the Son of your heavenly Father. As he is beloved of his Father, so you are beloved of the Father in him. There is this 
mirror, reciprocal reflection of conformity to Christ in you experiencing the love of God, even as Christ, the Son of God, experiences that love of his Father. Notice in verse 8, the word partakers. We have used the word possessors, those who are identified or united in the drama. That's the very same concept that he is using here. We are partakers and possessors because Christ is a partaker and a possessor. He, by his pilgrim faith, partook and possessed the glories of the age to come. Even though they were a part of him from all eternity, nonetheless, in his earthly incarnation, he embraced them, believed them, trusted them, looked forward to the fruition of them. That is your mirror reflection gift of conformity in him. You are a partaker. You are a possessor. You have been identified. Verse 9. Shall we not be subject to the Father's spirits and live? And live. Live how? Live where? Spiritually alive? I want it stronger than that. I want it stronger than that. Alive with Christ. What gift did he give you? The gift of life. The gift of life. What kind of life? Eternal life. Eternal life. I want it strong. I want it as strong as he is. That you are possessing the life that he has. What kind of life does he have? He has eternal life. You are a mirror reflection conformed unto him in life. You see, this word here in this verse is not just incidental. It doesn't mean your physical life. The father of spirits, he's talking about eternal life. He's talking about the life of that general assembly, the firstborn, and the spirits of just men and women and children made perfect. That's what he's talking about. Verse 22 and verse 23, that's what he's talking about here, isn't he? But notice, it is the life that is present in the pioneer pilgrim, in Christ himself. Verse 10. What does he call you to share? Marge? His holiness. Is Jesus holy? Perfectly holy? And here he calls you to possess, to participate in the holiness of Christ himself. This reciprocal measure of conformity, reflection, and union with Christ. He in holiness, you in holiness in him. His holiness in him, his holiness in you. You joined, united, participating, possessing his holiness as you sojourn. Verse 11. Pursue peace. 
Yes, the peace that passes all understanding. Christ, the Prince of Peace. He is the bringer of peace. He is the possessor of peace. He is identified with peace, perfect peace. And here is the mirror reflection. You are called to pursue it. You are called to possess it. You are called to identify with it, be united unto it, participate in it. And so, of course, you run around the church causing trouble. That's what you've been called to do, right? You've been called to be a burr in the saddle. You've been called to give everybody a rough time. You've been called to upset the apple cart. You haven't been called to be a doormat. Don't get that impression. You do have the right to speak up. But you haven't been called to be belligerent in the household of faith. Nor have you been called to be a big shot in the household of faith. Even if you're an officer, you haven't been called to be a big shot. You've been called to be a servant. You've been called to die to yourself. You've been called to give up your life for the sake of the flock. That's what you've been called to do. Not rule them with a whip. Or control them with your pocketbook. Or stand up at the congregational meeting and show off. Your powerful voice. You've been called to peace and to pursue it in union with the Prince of Peace. And finally, in verse 11, the fruit of this peace or the peaceful fruit, which is righteousness, is Jesus righteous. Is Jesus perfectly righteous? Is Jesus eternally righteous? Is Jesus heavenly righteous? Then here you are, privileged to be called into a mirror reflection of his righteousness, conformed unto him as the righteousness of God in Christ. All the way through this section, do you see what our author is structuring, the way he has arranged these phrases, the way he has concatenated these terms? He is drawing you in to the reflective conformity of your possession of Christ because Christ came to possess everything that you need, including peace, righteousness, holiness, the pilgrim status, Discipline, punishment, even to the shedding of blood, endurance, encountering what was set before him for your sake. Every element in these 17 verses, and we'll see with Esau in verses 15 to 17 in a moment. Every element in these 17 verses is a mirror reflection paradigm. It is a union with Christ paradigm. It is a you in him and he in you paradigm. It is the sweetest of all paradigms because it is the paradigm of eschatological glory. It is the paradigm now of what you will enjoy, not yet. It is your calling. It is your life. It is your soul and your heart. For you, too, 
are a pilgrim by faith. Are you not? You too belong to the pioneer pilgrim of faith. Do you not? But Esau did not. Take your break and we will see what happened to Esau. You have in your hand uh, something that you're responsible for. Uh, Me writing an article. Now, I alluded to this when we talked about the structure of the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Uh, I'm teasing you a little bit good-naturedly about you being responsible for this. Uh, But it is because I was doing this work for you on Thursday nights uh, that I began to see what is published here. And uh, so I want to thank you for forcing me to look at it this way. In other words, you know, I had to prepare to speak on the chapter and on the hook pattern that connects chapter uh, 10 to chapter 11. And lo and behold, I saw this chiastic homeopteton. Now, the homeopteton is a phrase which describes similar case endings. And if you look at the second page of this article, you actually see them marked in the Greek text. Now, I know that doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but I want you to see the pattern because it's easy for you to notice. As it was easy for me to notice once I began to realize what he was up to, you'll notice the last letters in those words. They are uh, sequentially similar. Notice I put them in a graph form under that 1039. The little uh, first letter looks like a squiggle. It's actually a sigma. It's the letter S. You would translate it into S. Uh, the new, which is looks like a V, is the letter N, in transliterated into English. So you notice the sequence. The sequence is absolutely regular. I even underlined the endings up in 1039 so you could see them in the original Greek. So notice it begins with a little uh, squiggle, the sigma, and ends with the sigma in 1039, and it hinges on the new, what would be an N in English. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 11. It's exactly the opposite. But it's still a chiasm. It begins with the new, ends with the new, and pivots on the sigma. But in each case, in both verses, the same sequence of case endings is used. That's what homoiopteton means, the similarity of case endings. Now, in the introductory paragraph, um, where did I have it? Yes, it's actually on page two, paragraph above uh, 1039, an example in Latin of a homoiopteton, Julius Caesar's family, famous veni vidi vici. You notice the case endings are the same. The I is the same in each of those three words. You know what it means? It means I came, I saw, I conquered. Okay, but it's also notice the first letter is the same. 
So this is an alliteration. It's an alliterative homoeopteton, though it's doubly literary. Now, our author in Hebrews hasn't done that. That is, he hasn't done an alliterative homoeopteton, but he's done a chiastic homoeopteton. He's arranged them perfectly in chiastic style, and he's doubled them in verses 13, verse 39, and verse 1 of chapter 11. So uh, there, there is the article that you forced me to write. Thank you. I'll be happy to answer any questions you have on it. Are there things in there that you don't understand? I'd be glad to discuss it with you. Uh, but anyway, I wanted you to give a kind of overview of what it was so that at least you wouldn't think that it's Greek to you entirely. <laughs> All right, now back to verses 15 to 17. With one additional note on your outline, uh, we have verses 10 11 and 14 outlined in blanks there. And this is the chiasm that we already saw on the first page of the outline. Only here we have it in reverse chiastic form. So verse 10 would be holiness. Verse 11 would be peaceful. Verse 14 would be peace. And verse 14 would be sanctification or holiness again. And there you see the chiastic reversal in the order of the terms. Now to Esau. Now, Esau is obviously not a mirror reflection of conformity to Christ. So what's he doing in this chapter? What's he doing in this section which is dealing with mirror reflection conformity to Christ? He's a reverse mirror. He's an opposite mirror. He's a negative mirror. He is not conformed to Christ. He does not possess Christ. He is not a semi-eschatological pilgrim by faith. That is, he's not a sojourner who is looking for the city whose builder and maker is God. In verse 15, notice, he comes short of the grace of God. The flip side of that is, don't you come short of the grace of God. You see, he's once again reminding you of your conformity to Christ by talking about Esau as a flip side of it. Now, this is once again, this is not imitation or emulation. This is possession. Esau does not possess grace. He is not identified with the grace of God. He doesn't participate in the grace of God. Verse 17, he has no inheritance. He rejected the inheritance. He rejected the inheritance of his birthright. Don't you reject the inheritance. You have been called to be heirs together with Christ. In fact, Christ is the heir, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Chapter 1 of Hebrews is talking about Christ being the eschatological heir. That means you are conformed to him as semi-eschatological heirs. Esau was not. And finally, notice in verse 17. He had no benediction. He had no blessing. All right, so Esau is the negative flip side of conformity or mirror reflection of Christ. He is unconformed. He is unreflected in Christ. He is not mirrored in the eschatological pilgrim. He is not a pilgrim himself. He is very content with the earth and with the world. And with material things, and with all things external, 
But with things internal that deal with the spirit, he has no interest. With things that are of eternal weight, he has no interest. In fact, of those internal and eternal things, he is contemptuous. He despises his birthright. He is contemptuous of God. Notice he is called godless. In this 16th verse. Why is he godless? Because he spurned what God had granted the firstborn. How can you spurn your birthright, which was granted to you by God, and be a lover of God? You cannot be. He is a despiser of God and of his covenant order. In addition, he is contemptuous of God with respect to his marital partners. Why do I say that? Okay, why do I say that? He had two wives. So did Jacob, so I guess I didn't. He had two wives. They were not from God's people. Where are they from? The descendants of the Lord's. No, they were Hittites. They were Hittites. They were pagans. He takes two pagan wives, and Genesis 26, 34, 35 says that it grieved his parents, displeased his parents. He despised the covenant. He despised the bounds of the covenant. He said... Take that, mom and dad. I'm going to take any wife I want. I don't care what the covenant says. I don't care what being married in the Lord means. And here, in this 16th verse, the writer of Hebrews calls him an immoral person. The Greek word for immoral is pornos. Pornos. What English word do we get from that from, Professor Sanborn? Pornography. Pornography, which has sexual immorality involved in it. There is no record in the Bible of Esau's sexual immorality apart from this verse. So that some want to say that his pornos was idolatry, spiritual harlotry. I don't think so. Not contemptuous Esau. Not Esau who's driven by externals. Fired up by his own testosterone. I don't think so. Pagan wives and one's not good enough. All right. So even though we don't have an explicit story to describe Esau's pornographic inclinations. Nonetheless, there is enough in the record to suggest that he had either a wandering eye or a bigamous eye, or both. Now, to the antitheses in verses 18 through 28. There are two antitheses in this section. 18 to 24 constitutes the first 
and 25 to 28, the second. Both of these are eschatological antitheses. That is, they are projecting finality to the paradigm, to the paradigm which they outline. They are projecting completion or perfection to the paradigm which they outline. Now, the paradigm they outline is contained within the verses between 18 to 24 in the first case and 25 to 28 in the second case. That's what I mean by the paradigm they, that is the verses, outline. Now, the first eschatological antithesis, that is, antithesis of finality, completion, and perfection, is a redemptive historical antithesis. Verses 18 to 24 is a redemptive historical eschatological antithesis. The other, the second, verses 25 to 28, is a cosmic critical antithesis. Now, I'll expand upon what I mean by cosmic and critical in a moment, but I want you to understand the, shall we say, slight symmetry here, redemptive historical, cosmic critical. Now, beginning with verse 18 to 24 and the first antithesis, the redemptive historical one, fill in the blanks under mountain. What's the antithesis? Terry, verse 18. What mountain smoked with fire in gloom and darkness? Sinai. Sinai. That is Mount Sinai. Okay. What's the antithetical mountain? Ben, what's the antithetical mountain? Mount Zion. Mount Zion. Okay, so there's the antithesis with respect to the mountains. Now, if you question whether or not Sinai or even a mountain is understood in verse 18, because mountain may be in italics in your version, and therefore the word is not in the text, notice verse 20. So he's talking about a mountain. All right, now, back to verse 18. This word touched, a mountain that may not be touched. So mountain is understood. It's in italics, but it's understood from verse 20. That's the context. He's talking about the mountain which Moses was administering, okay? So he says he couldn't be touched. What's he mean by that? Does he mean they weren't allowed to touch the mountain with their hand? No. As Voss points out in his brilliant exegesis of this passage, he says he's talking about a material mountain. He's talking about that which is tangible. Yes, we say it's physical, but notice it is of the elements of the world. What about Zion? It is a mountain which may be touched. Is he talking about David's Mount Zion in verse 22? Ben? He's talking about the city of God? A mountain that can be touched? No, an untouched mountain. A mountain that cannot be touched. It's the opposite. There's the antithesis. This mountain in 18, which can be touched, Sinai, is material and tangible. 
Zion is immaterial and intangible. We could say that the one is physical and the other is spiritual. We need to be a little bit careful there. But nonetheless, the antithesis here is between that which is tangible and that which is not. All right, now the phenomenon that go along with these respective mountains. What do I mean by phenomena? Well, in verse 18, the first phenomena is that it can be touched. What's the second phenomena? It has fire blazing. What's the third phenomena? Darkness. Darkness. What's the next? Gloom. What's the next? I heard it. Wind. Whirlwind or wind. What's the next? The blast of the trumpet. What's next? And the sound of words. The sound of words. The voice. We'll say voice. How many things did you list? Seven. Seven. Now, what's the antithesis? What's the phenomena of the antithesis? Verse 22, what's the first phenomenon? Heaven. No. No. What is this Mount Zion? City of the living God. There's your first phenomenon. It's the city of the living God. Next. Heavenly Jerusalem. Next. Myriads of angels. Next. Skip that. That's actually tied into myriads. That's a textual issue. So we'll leave that out. I don't want to get into that because it's a little complex. But what's next? Church of the firstborn. What's next? Or who's next? God. What's next? The spirits of just men made perfect. We'll put just men, women, and children because men here is generic. Okay. And what's next? Or who's next? Jesus. Jesus. How many did you list? Seven. Seven. Isn't that amazing? Seven parallel phenomena, or shall we say seven antithetical phenomena. This man is a genius. This man is a genius. Inspiration notwithstanding. You understand what he's doing with this literary character? Okay. Now, what's the response? What's the response to Mount Sinai? Verse 21. Fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. What's the response to Mount Zion? Come on, all you rap stars. No fear. 
No fear and no trembling. All right, now, this antithesis, redemptive historically, is eschatologically oriented. Mount Sinai is pointing beyond itself, but it's pointing beyond itself in a negative way, pointing beyond itself to its antithesis. That's what he's doing here. He's tying together these theophonic glory glory appearances, the one on Sinai and the other on this heavenly Zion. And he's doing it in order to draw his readers into the possession of the inheritance, the possession of the city, the better possession. What's he say in verse 22? He says, you have come. But this city, this Mount Zion, this is a perfectly consummately eschatological city. It is a city that you and I have not yet come to. But he says you have. How have we come when we've not yet come? Or is this gobbledygook? Is this dialectical paradox? Is this contradiction? Is this good old German Bardianism? Is that what this is? It's the same old argument of already but not yet. It's the now, not yet. So how have we come? We have come provisionally. We have come by way of pilgrim destination. We are destined for that city, and so we have come to it even now, which means we're in what kind of a state? That city is the perfectly consummately eschatological city. What kind of a state are we in? Semi-eschatological. We are now and not yet there. But the day will come when we will be there Not yet. Now. And this now will be past. All right. So as we have this provisional involvement, this provisional coming into the heavenly Jerusalem, we have it because it is our destination. We have it because it is inheritance. We have it because who is there? Jesus is there. And so is God there. That where I am, there you may be also. Not just consummately, but presently. Now time. That's your identity. He identified himself with you. He joined you to himself in such a way that where he is, Now, which is you're not yet, you are already provisionally. Any questions about that first antithesis, the redemptive historical one? Yes, sir? When you say provisionally, do you mean semi-eschatological? I mean semi-eschatological. I mean it's provisionally there. That is, it belongs to you. 
But you don't have its consummate possession. You have provisional possession. You have the possession by faith, not by sight. But by faith, it is a real possession, even as that faith is the substance of things hoped for, that faith is the evidence of things not seen. It is not the consummate substance or evidence, but it is a provisional evidence and substance. It is as real as the consummate itself is as real as it can be to faith, not sight. Which is the reason that you pray, Lord, strengthen my faith, that I may see by faith more clearly until I see transparently, face to face. You're growing. You're growing in that. You see, this is a pilgrim journey. You are maturing. You are growing up. You are advancing. You are not stuck. You are not sitting on your loyals. You are not content with what you know. You are learning, understanding, being drawn deeper into the life of Christ because you're understanding the life of Christ revealed in the word to you and your faith is growing stronger, stronger, richer, deeper. You're plumbing the depths of the heart of God. De profundis, de profundis. Out of the depths, O Lord, I cry unto thee. The title in the Latin is De Profundis. Out of the depths, your faith is being strengthened, maturing, looking earnestly for the appearance of that day. All right, now we come to the second antithesis, which is the cosmic critical antithesis in verses 25 28. By cosmic, we mean the entire created universe. Notice the marismas in verse 26. What's a marismas? It's an expression of comprehensiveness or totality. What's the marismas in verse 26? The totality of the cosmos is? I will shake the earth and also the heavens. Heavens and the earth. The earth and the heavens, correct. There's your marismas. Okay, the earth and the heavens, that's all there is. That's the whole created universe. So, we are talking in this cosmic aspect of this antithesis, this eschatological antithesis of the totality of the created order. The totality of the created order. And notice what he says. It's going to be removed. It is the totality of finality. The totality of finality of removal. The totality of finality of destruction. The totality of finality of annihilation. Notice that word once and for all. It's the very same Greek word that we've had before in this epistle. Hapox. Hapox. Once and for all. The totality of finality of ultimate crisis. Consummate crisis. What do I mean by crisis or critical? I mean the final 
curtain call of creation and the cosmos. When the curtain rings down on the whole created cosmos, the marismas of all that is created, heavens and earth, everything in its totality, finally destroyed, removed, annihilated once and for all. Notice what is removed from existence in verse 27. What is removed from existence is what is movable. What is removed from existence is what can be shaken. What is removed from existence is what is transient. What what is removed from existence is what is mutable. What is removed from existence is what is temporal. And what is removed from existence is what is spatial. Understand that this marismus, he's going to shake the heavens and the earth once and for all. He's going to remove time and space. He's going to destroy those categories of reality and existence. They can be shaken. They can be removed. That's what he's going to come to do once more. Once more, I'm going to come and I'm going to take it all. I'm going to shake it all. I'm going to remove it all. Well, why is he going to remove it all and shake it all? He's going to remove it all and shake it all so that that which cannot be shaken, that which cannot be moved will remain. Notice he says it will remain. It's already there. But he's going to take all time and space out of the equation so that what has already been there and always been there will remain there. Why then this removal? So that what already is irremovable may remain so. Or so that already what is eternal and not temporal may remain so. Or so that what already is glorious and glorified may remain so. Look what he says. He says, I'm going to shake what can be shaken so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Well, then what will be what will not be removed from existence? What will not be removed from existence is what is immovable. He's going to remove what can be removed. What is immovable, he will not remove. He will remove what cannot be shaken. He will shake what can be shaken so that what cannot be shaken will not be shaken. It will remain. It will abide. What will not be removed from existence? What is durable in opposition to what is transient? What is durable? What endures? Not what passes away, because it can be shaken, because he's going to remove it. What will not be removed from existence, what is eternal, in opposition to what is temporal. And what will not be removed from existence, 
what partakes of the space of God's life. Now you ponder that one. You see, I didn't use the opposite of spatial in the previous comparisons and antithesis. What partakes of the space of God's life will not be removed. Now obviously I'm using the word space ironically in single quotation marks, but you get what I'm driving at. It is the dimension of God himself, which doesn't occupy space. It is unbounded. It is spaceless. It is aspatial. And yet there are myriads of angels in it. And Christ in his glorified resurrected body is sitting at the right hand of the throne of his father on high in it. Then what are we going to say about this dimension? It is the dimension of the life of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the myriad of angels and the church of the general assembly, the firstborn and the spirits of just men and women made perfect along with children. What kind of dimension is that? I don't know. I have no experience of it. Even Paul, who did experience it, could not describe it. And so I can only use pictures. It's got gold streets. It's got pearly gates. It's got walls four square. It's got beautiful trees and leaves. It's got water rivers flowing in and out of it. I can only use pictures to describe it. And yet, you see, the pictures aren't really what it is. They are the closest thing that you can grab hold of to understand. The surpassing, surpassing excellence of that city whose builder and maker is God. You can't imagine the glory of that place because it's even better than gold streets and pearly gates and square cubed walls. That is unshakable. That will never be removed. That is as eternal as God himself is eternal. And that is what you possess as a pilgrim, as a Hebrew. That is what you possess by faith.
for the antithesis of that is the fire that consumes. That's the negative paradigm. As a stinger at the end of this marvelous section of elaborating the rich inheritance of the glory of the pilgrims old, present, and new. Our God is a consuming fire. Hell is where God is not. Jonathan Edwards said, no. Hell is where God is present in his fiery fury. Consuming forever those who hate him. Those who like Esau are godless and immoral. The antithesis cuts. It divides. It separates. And it makes all the more urgent the message of the pioneer pilgrim. Any questions or comments? What is received from that dimension that the triune God possesses? An unshakable kingdom. A heavenly kingdom. A Jerusalem city kingdom of heaven. A church of heavenly enrollees. A kingdom of perfected spirits of men, women, and children. A heavenly tabernacle whose priest mediator is Jesus. Jesus, whose new covenant blood speaks better things. Better things. Glorious things. Unshakable things. Immovable things. Eternal things. Jesus' blood, who speaks better things than the blood of Abel. The whole history of redemption, from Abel's blood to Jesus' blood. And the blood that at the end of the age speaks better things. Any questions or comments? Scott. And you didn't comment much on verse 25. Do you see that refusing of him who speaks as being then, you know, the reversal of imitation? Yes, um, the hymn there is obviously God who spoke from Sinai. That is the first hymn. It's capitalized in the New American Standard in order to make it clear that it's not Moses. So yes, this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. The first sentence perhaps being... 
that? Yeah, I think that the first line is generic. Okay, it's it's kind of comprehensive, and then he becomes specific about you know when it spoke on earth, and much less him who warns from heaven, in the sense that that uh, warning from heaven out of that heavenly arena, verse twenty two and twenty three, is the is the message of the Son of God, which has been proclaimed in these last days. Going back to chapter one and chapter two, those that heard him. Well, school's out early. 